This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Driver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. This is our fourth and final episode discussing Chinua Achebe's groundbreaking novel, Things Fall Apart. In episode one, we discussed the country of Nigeria and the history and the cultural context and Achebe's life and the, the poem from which the book got its name and a little of the life of Okonkwo, our hero in the story. In the second episode, we explored the first seven chapters of the novel and talked briefly about the book that inspired Achebe to write it, which is Joseph Conrad's novel, Heart of Darkness. And last episode, we got into more controversial territory as we broached issues of gender as expressed by Achebe. And this week, in case gender wasn't controversial enough, we're going to focus on colonialism, religion, and father-son relationships. Good grief. Achebe is merciless. He's killing us with controversy. Killing us? Irony? Is that foreshadowing? (laughs) But he doesn't so sweetly that the confrontation really isn't as offensive as it might be. By virtue of his birthplace and age, he confronted issues 50 years ago that today are common problems all over planet Earth. By being a child of two cultures with two distinct religions, living in a country plagued with colonialism, civil war, racism, and corruption, his perspective from lived experience has credibility. And on that note, I do want to draw attention to a contemporary Nigerian author of today that's in the same vein. And that would be Chimamanda Adichie. Adichie first came to my attention through a friend who told me about her very famous TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story. Adichie, like Achebe, understands that things are more than just one thing, and she speaks to our generation about how to apply these things today. I'll try to link her TED Talk to our website as well. So let's begin talking about religion and the introduction of Christianity into the Nigerian landscape, uh, which is where we left off last week. And uh, last week, we were still in part two of Things Fall Apart. Okonkwo was still in his mother's land. Today, we finished part two as well as discuss the most important ideas of part three. 
And we finish with chapter 15 and the incident of the white man entering into Abame, being killed there by locals, encouraged by the oracle, and then slaughtered in mass by the full force of the colonial army. The pattern is established. Missionaries come first, but after them comes government in that order. Or as it says in chapter 18, the white men had not only brought a religion, but also a government. Well, by chapter 16, we're referencing the white man, but not by missionaries building hospitals or or teaching in schools, but as soldiers. And it doesn't take long for one to follow the other. And we're also led to understand some of the things about Christianity that appealed to the native people. It's the second year of Okonkwo's exile, and Obierica comes back to Mbanta to visit But this time, when he talks about the white man, it's about the white man coming to Umofia. And not just that, it seems Okonkwo's son has converted to Christianity and had been one of the missionaries to visit the clan. And Obierica was shocked. Yes, and this again is where we see Achebe hitting on universal issues and setting them in a context that is foreign to most of us. Okonkwo's issue with his son is more than just an example of colonial intrusion. Why is Noahwe an earlier adopter of Christianity? In large part, the only people converting to Christianity were what they were calling Ifulefu, or worthless people, people that were the absolute bottom of the Ibu social system. In fact, this was one of the reasons why the clan permitted Christianity. Christianity was basically collecting all the garbage the clan really didn't want. They were living in the evil forest, a place no one wanted to be. And here Achebe also explains that Igbo society had a class system and not everyone flourished under it. There were those that were rejected by the system and those were the first to accept the new system because it elevated their worth. If you're an Efulefu or an Osu, which actually means outcast, it makes sense. But Nyowe isn't Efulefu. His father has two titles. Achebe answers this question very subtly for his audience by again using this narrative technique of gently letting us slip into Niwawe's mind. Remember, we call that indirect discourse. Let's read the passage where the missionaries are talking about Jesus Christ and what is it exactly that led Niwawe to convert to this new faith. After the singing, the interpreter spoke about the Son of God, whose name was Jesu Christi. Okonkwo, who only stayed in the hope that it might come to chasing the men out of the village or whipping them, now said, You told us with your own mouth that there was only one God. Now you talk about his son? He must have a wife, then. And the crowd agreed. I did not say he had a wife, said the interpreter, somewhat lamely. Your buttocks said he had a son, said the joker. So he must have a wife, and all of them must have buttocks. The missionary ignored him and went on to talk about the Holy Trinity. At the end of it, Okonkwo was fully convinced that the man was mad. He shrugged his shoulders and went away to tap his afternoon palm wine. But there was a young lad who had been captivated. His name was Noe, Okonkwo's first son. It was not the mad logic of the Trinity that captivated him. He did not understand it. It was the poetry of the new religion, something felt in the marrow. The hymn about brothers who sat in darkness and in fear seemed to answer a vague and persistent question that haunted his young soul. The question of the twins crying in the bush and the question of Ikimafuma who was killed. He felt a relief within as the hymn poured into his parched soul. 
The words of the hymn were, like the drops of frozen rain melting on the dry palate of the panting earth. In Y.A.'s callow mind was greatly puzzled. Now let me read what Aconquo thought about his son's conversion. As Aconquo sat in his hut that night, gazing into a log fire, he thought over the matter. A sudden fury rose within him, and he felt a strong desire to take up his machete, go to the church, and wipe out the entire vile and miscreant gang. But on further thought, he told himself that Nioe was not worth fighting for. Why, he cried in his heart, should he, Aconquo of all people, be cursed with such a son? He saw clearly in it the finger of his personal god or chi. For how else could be explained his great misfortune in exile and now his despicable son's behavior? Now that he had time to think of it, his son's crime stood out in its stark enormity. To abandon the gods of one's father and go about with a lot of effeminate men clucking like old hens was the very depth of abomination. Suppose when he died, all his male children decided to follow in Nuawe's steps and abandon their ancestors. Aconquo felt a cold shudder run through him at the tremble prospect like the prospect of annihilation. In some ways, we see what's happening with Nwoye, and it's very Freudian. He basically uh, rejects Ibu faith, in part at least as a way to reject his own father, just like Okonkwo had rejected his father before him. And Okonkwo won't bend on what his idea of a man is. So Nwoye embraces more of what Okonkwo hates. I mean, the relationship falls apart. Uh, how many sons and daughters have done something just because they knew their parents hated it? And how many uh, became something that their parents hate just to spite them? And Okonkwo himself is a reaction to his own father. And his obsession with masculinity is a direct response to his father, as is his son's is a response to his. And, um, you know, how complicated is this crazy thing that we call the parent-child relationship. You have no other relationship in the world like it. I mean, the relationship you have with your parent or child is totally unlike any relationship you will ever have with any other person on this earth. And it goes on through the generations. Um, and although not this pronounced, but one generation is always reacting to the previous one. And in the case of Akanko and Nuawe, it brings us back to the imbalance between the masculine and feminine principles. It is one of the things that divide these two men. Well, I think it's important to understand um, that not everything portrayed about the Ibu culture is something Achebe endorses. And Achebe never claims that Ibu culture is perfect. And uh, there is no such thing as a perfect culture. And we have seen this raw expression of humanity from the beginning. I mean, one example would be the killing of twins. And uh, as we make our way to the end of the book, we begin to understand uh, really more fully why it is important to Achebe to uh, portray Ibu culture in as honest a way as he can. I mean, Ibu land is not adventure land. It's not Disney World. I mean, it's humanity on display and their civilization isn't flawless, but it is a human civilization. That seems obvious from this vantage point, but if we understand a little bit about colonial education, it becomes an important point to emphasize. I heard Achebe talk about his homeland when the book turned 50 years old. He talked about his love for his homeland. He clearly loved his homeland deeply, but he also described Nigeria with the word frustrating. He called it annoying, but then he said, it's the only home I have. 
There are things that he loved about his home, his culture. He loved their admiration of hard work and excellence. He appreciated dialogue. But there were things about his homeland that he hated. The propensity for corruption, as we see exposed in part three, is the one that I heard him talk about specifically. Uh, Although... I will say corruption exists in every culture. But as he explained himself, he made the point that his loyalty to Nigeria and to the Ibu was never contingent on Nigeria's perfection or really even their commitment to improve, although he longed for the day, he did this all the way till he died, where a leader would surface in Nigeria that could lead them to a great reality. He talked about loving home because it is a part of who we are, and we are a part of improving it when we do our part. When we demand that our homeland be a perfect place as a requirement for our acceptance of it, we create a binary that cannot withstand pressure. And may I point out uh, that this is also true between parents and children. (laughs) I mean, when we make uncompromising demands from anyone, that puts the relationship exclusively on our terms. And we do create binaries that divide and ultimately make relationships fall apart. When I heard Achebe talk about his home country, it made me think about my home country, the United States, because what he says applies to any country. Achebe explains that the Ibu worldview is made up of ideals and beliefs and values, but even people who believe strongly in the ideals, like Okonkwo, don't always live up to their own beliefs, and this is where weaknesses from within a culture can destroy it. I understand him to be arguing that the military force was not the biggest threat during the colonization period. It was the cultural colonization that was given an opportunity to flourish because, in part, of internal weaknesses. This is kind of how I interpret the final part of the book. It also seems to be the idea in Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, where Achebe pulled the title. I do want to read the whole stanza from the poem because it kind of outlines the rest of the book. Things fall apart. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. If we look at the last three lines, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. That's what we had before and what we're seeing now in part two. There was a ceremony of innocence in part one, but it's drowning. And we see that the best lack all conviction. And finally, we're going to see with the introduction of the character of Enoch and then the corrupt government officials that the worst are full of passionate intensity. Intensity, and that's the recipe that drives things to fall apart. I absolutely love that line. The worst are full of passionate intensity. <laughs> I know. It's true. Uh, humans and families and civilizations fall because of weaknesses from within the system, not without. And the center no longer holds, or to use Yates' words, uh, to use his words, and things fall apart. Yates actually believed that all civilizations eventually fall apart, but we'll talk about that next week when we talk about Yates and his poetry career. Well, he may be right. Uh, How does a civilization evolve with people of integrity doing their best to preserve ideas and values while uh, changing with the times? And how do you fight the corruption from within? 
there's a lot of opportunity when things change for power grabbing. And people without integrity or wisdom often rise to power. And not only do they often rise to power, they are full of passionate intensity. <laughs> That's right. And Achebe illustrates this so well on the third section. And this creates the disaster. On the personal level, we see a man of integrity, a conquo, but he cannot evolve or change. We also see a society who will evolve, but corruption immediately sets in. In times of great transition, it's just easier for people without integrity to get to the top. They're willing to do things that people with conviction just won't do, and so the center doesn't hold. To discuss the historical narrative of colonialism and how things break down on a community level, we do need to make one huge clarification. Aconquo is going to fall, but let us be clear about one thing. The Ibu people have not fallen apart by any definition of the term. It's actually, to this day, a thriving community all over the world. Later in life, Achebe talked about the Ibu culture years after the setting of this book, and he says this, A culture can be damaged can be turned from its course, not only by foreigners. A culture can be mutilated, can be destroyed by its own people under certain circumstances. The Ibu culture was not destroyed by Europe. It was disturbed. It was disturbed very seriously. But a culture which is healthy will often survive. It will not survive exactly in the form in which it was met by the invading culture, but it will modify itself and move on. And this is the great thing about culture if it is alive. The people who own it will ensure that they make adjustments. They drop what can no longer be carried in transition. So I think what has happened is that we still have the fundamental principles of the Ibu culture. Its emphasis is on the worth of every man and woman. And so we land once again on this idea of balance, finding balance during transition, which is the big takeaway from the middle section of the book. Well, Christy, as we think about the role of missionaries in Africa, I know we start to get a little personal with you because (laughs) of your family's involvement with missions all over the world and specifically the the many ties that you have to Africa. And for those who don't know, um, Christy was raised overseas. And even before that, her dad was a missionary in Vietnam during the 60s, during the war years. And her mother was in Nigeria, uh, actually during Achebe's time there. And she was working in education, um, although she worked with the Yoruba people. And Christy, it's it's been a long time, little over a hundred years since the first missionaries were sent to Africa, and there's no debating that the colonial government grew in parallel with missionary efforts. And what are your thoughts on this last section of the book that looks at the mission work from the side of the indigenous people? Uh, well, honestly, I I truly appreciate the fact that Achebe does not put all missionaries in the same basket. Christian missions, and that's what I know, but it's not the only religion that practices missionary work. But mission work of any religion is going to be cross-cultural by definition. Historically, there is no denying that a lot has been done in the name of missions that is destructive to Native cultures and even individuals. Sometimes that was happening because of ignorance. Sometimes people did it intentionally. There's been a lot of arrogance, and today we use the term the savior complex, no doubt. 
But I don't believe missionaries are the only group that can be accused of that. Any person or organization, when they have a new technology like missionaries bring in, like hospitals or bicycles or a worldwide trade language like English in this case, uh, you see this kind of thing. But technologies are also things like computers, anything. Knowing something that other people don't brings arrogance in a lot of people. I've seen it here in our workplace in Memphis, Tennessee, people with the technology edge in one domain misunderstand themselves and think they possess wisdom in all domains. Some, but not all missionaries, fall clearly into that camp. The ones that are going to be good uh, most certainly uh, don't do that. And Achebe is very careful to make this distinction. Mr. Brown and Akuna, one of the, the locals in the story, have extensive dialogue over spiritual things, and we see respect, and we see one helping the other. There are missionaries like Mr. Brown who are aware of cultural differences, and they do their very best to respect them. Mr. Brown does hold to Christian interpretations of life principles, for example, the Christian definition of what constitutes human life. But he introduces these values as something to be discussed and offered voluntarily, not superimposed. Well, you would think that the value of life would be something easy to define, but guess what? It actually isn't. <laughs> no, it's the thing philosophers argue about. Uh, the Ibu obviously hold life to be sacred. So do the missionaries. But they think differently about how to protect life. How do you protect the lives of most people? These are the ethical questions that plague all cultures, and Achebe introduces this complexity with the killing of twins. The Ibu see the twins as a threat to the lives of the many already living. Christianity sees the value of the newborn babies as trumping the risk for the adult members of the clan. This is an honest discussion. But you see also missionaries like Mr. Smith who will not dialogue at all. They don't see differences of moral interpretation as elements of culture, but they see all things as my culture is morally right and yours is morally wrong. We are good people, so therefore you must be a bad person. There have always been both approaches to missions and missionaries. Uh, and at Chebe, you know, he's one of these people, he had to have extensive experience with both kinds to be able to even know the difference. Yes, and Achebe underscored more than once that Africa did gain a lot from the missionaries. And the question he raises is if culturally they did not lose more than they gained. And, and he's not talking about soldiers or government. He's actually talking about education. And his reasons for this are psychological. And Africans were taught in colonial schools, whether directly or, or subtextually, that their history was inferior to European history. Uh, that the great men to be imitated were all European men like David Livingston. And they were taught that the important history of the world was history that occurred really far away and not near where they lived or within their social fabric. And, and none of this is healthy for critical thinking. And all of it creates feelings of inferiority in individuals as well as entire cultures. And Achebe spoke of feeling that struggle himself. True, we must remember Achebe speaks as one of the children raised in the church, not in the village. He went to missionary schools. He did well, in fact. He was one of the most successful students in the entire nation. That is what he said, and I do want to quote from an essay that he wrote in 1976. He says this, 
I was born in Ojiji in eastern Nigeria of devout Christian parents. The line between Christian and non-Christian was much more definite in my village 40 years ago than it is today. When I was growing up, I remember we tended to look down on the others. We were called in our language the people of the church or the association of God. The others we called with a conceit appropriate to followers of the true religion, the heathen, or, quote, the people of nothing. Wow, interesting words from Achebe. And again, uh, we see here in a religious context that we were just talking about is in terms of education. I mean, this kind of thing reinforces uh, the psychologically harmful idea that native Ibu or African culture of any kind is inferior. In fact, as far as Africans were taught, they were taught that before the Europeans came to Africa, they had no history. There was no culture. There was no civilization. Uh, that They'd been savages, basically, or lesser forms of humanity. And that's what enraged Achebe and motivated his writing, because even coming out of the Christian camp, he saw there was a, he knew there was a long history of a civilization and a culture. Sure. And, and that's what these confrontations at the end of the book are about. Achebe wants to write his book about his people. He wants to incontrovertibly illustrate humanity. But in order to do this, he chooses to draw attention to the weaknesses within the in community, within individuals that can give place to chaos, not weaknesses from colonial schools or other outside pressures. Let's look at Norway, for example. He had questions that were not being answered within the framework of traditional Ibu culture about his own identity and definition of masculinity. He had deep wounds over the death of Ikemafuna, and these are legitimate. We also see other problems. In chapter 18, this is highlighted through the character of Mr. Kiaga, the native African missionary leader interpreter, as he tries to balance two contrasting worldviews in regard to the Osu, or worthless people. The church, who you remember is mostly composed of people on the lower rungs of regular Ibu society, wanted to reject the Osu from the church, because they were of low-born birth. But Mr. Kiaga, as an African leader in his own right, navigates Christian faith in an Ibu culture, and Achebe displays just how very complicated these clashes can be. The young church in Mabanta had a few crises early in its life. At first, the clan had assumed that it would not survive, but had gone on living and gradually becoming stronger. The clan was worried, but not over much. If a gang of the Efulefu decided to live in the evil forest, it was their own affair. When one came to think of it, the evil forest was a fit home for such undesirable people. It was true they were rescuing twins from the bush, but they never brought them into the village. As far as the villagers were concerned, the twins still remained where they had been, thrown away. Surely the earth goddess would not visit the sins of the missionaries on the innocent villagers." And the little church was at the moment too deeply absorbed in its own troubles to annoy the clan. It all began over the question of admitting outcasts. These outcasts, or Osu, seeing that the new religion welcomed twins and such abominations, thought it was possible that they would also be received. So one Sunday, two of them went into the church. There was an immediate stir, but so great was the work the new religion had done among the converts that they did not immediately leave the church when the outcasts came in. Those who found themselves nearest to them merely moved to another seat. It was a miracle, but it only lasted till the end of the service. The whole church raised a protest and was about to drive these people out when Mr. Kiaga stopped them and began to explain. Before God, he said, there is no slave or free. We are all children of God. We must receive these, our brothers. 
So having discussed the messy situation as it pertained to the church, to the schools, I think the imperial imposition of colonial government is less messy and easier to understand, which brings us to the natural question. How does one country, in this case Britain, just show up to another country that is not its own country and set up a government? From this vantage point, it's difficult to see how that would happen, and it's clear that the natives don't understand what's going on. Well, that's a great question, and it really has everything to do with what was happening outside of Africa uh, while all this missionary work was going on inside. It's outside forces that villagers didn't even know existed that that were going to create this uh, cataclysmic clash that we're going to see in part three of the novel. And honestly, from our vantage point in history, it just seems incredible that it happened. So in 1884... Otto von Bismarck called together something called the Berlin or the Congo Congress, and representatives from 14 countries attended. None of them were African countries, and they organized what was called the Scramble for Africa. By the end of the conference, all the countries, with the exception of the United States, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Sweden, Norway, had made a claim to lands in Africa. You mean they just decided who was going to aggress on who in other people's lands? Uh, well, that's definitely how Africans <laughs> saw it, you know. And and honestly, colonizers had already been doing so. We, we talked about the Royal Niger Company in episode one. And uh, what happened at this conference did not start colonization in Africa, but it contributed to heightening it as well is to help override most of the existing forms of African self-government that had b- existed up to this point. And colonialism happened with kind of this three-pronged front, religion, economics, and then finally the military or government. And uh, Could things have been different if only companies and missionaries had come to Africa and there were no political and military invasion? Well, we don't really know. Um, that's not what happened. In the case of Nigeria, the British military was associated with and, and aided by the advent of the missionaries and commercial endeavors, but the military presence immediately resulted in violence and uh, a total upheaval of the political system and taking away systems that were locally controlled. Uh, and in the case of southern regions of Nigeria, even the elimination of local languages as the language of the state, and all of a sudden, Everything's being done in English, and it's also ironic to notice that the British came in with a totalitarian regime and replaced what was, in the Evo case, actually a democratic system that was responsible to the people they were governing. And in the name of progress, the new colonial system was an autocratic system comprised of people from the outside who were accountable to absolutely no one on the continent. And after the British invaded, uh, crown rule began around 1897. And these are the exact years discussed in our book. And these district commissioners were accountable only to an office in Britain. And the mandate was to secure British interest. I would like to say the same mistake they made in the American colonies. So who was looking out for the, the common man or woman? The system was not designed to do that. And these district commissioners were despised by local people, and the local people who worked for them viewed them pretty much as traitors. Achebe uses a word that looked to me when I first read it. I thought it was an Ibu word, and it's katma, K-O-T-M-A. But it's really a distortion of the English word. He called these messengers katma or Courtman, Cartman. 
and they make fun of them. Even the distortion of the word is a way to make fun of them. It distorts the word because they are distortions. They're distortions of reality. They're government messages, but it's a distorted kind of way. And this distortion is a total shock for Okonkwo as he run, returns to Umofia to a totally colonial environment. Okonkwo wants to rebuild his life just like he'd done as a young man. And he had this plan to come storming back and climb up to the top of the social hierarchy, the legal way, the right way. He's prepared for natural setbacks. Of course, he's been gone for seven years. He knows the white men are there. And he knows that this is going to be a problem with his oldest son, but he has already decided how to address this. Let's read how Aconquo plans to deal with the fact that his oldest son is now a Christian. He sent for the five sons, and they came and sat in his obi. The youngest of them was four years old. You have all seen the great abomination of your brother. Now he is no longer my son or your brother. I will only have a son who is a man who will hold his head up among my people. If any one of you prefers to be a woman, let him follow Nwoye now while I am alive so I can curse him. If you turn against me when I am dead, I will visit you and break your neck. Well, um, although Okwanko was prepared to deal with the missionary presence, he was not prepared for the colonial government as well as the uh, the Africans' Katma. And many, if not most, who were not even from the communities they served so let's read that part. Apart from the church, the white men had also brought a government. They had built a court where the district commissioner judged cases in ignorance. He had court messengers who brought men to him for trial. Many of these messengers came from Umuru on the bank of the Great River, where the white men first came many years before and where they had built the center of their religion and trade and government. These court messengers were greatly hated in Umufia because they were foreigners and arrogant and high-handed. They were called Katma, and because of their ash-colored shorts, they earned the additional name of Ashy Buttocks. <laughs> Great insult. <laughs> I know. I love the humor that these locals have making fun of these invaders. Some of the most thematically important lines of the entire book come from chapter 20. Okonkwo just cannot believe that his hometown has lost its self-efficacy. It does not rule itself. He can't climb to the top of the social hierarchy through hard work and the respect of his peers. Outsiders are coming, people that are unaccountable to anyone, and most of them are not honorable people. The outsiders have control, and he's shocked, and he can't understand why this is happening. It's shocking to us as readers, too, because we can see that it's just not fair. We, like Okonkwo, have to ask, how did this happen? And we're explained again by the wise voice of Obierica. It is already too late, said Obierica sadly. Our own men and our sons have joined the ranks of the stranger. They have joined his religion and they helped to uphold his government. If we should try to drive out the white men in Umofia, we should find it easy. There are only two of them. But what of our own people who are following their way and have been given power? They would go to Imuru and bring the soldiers and we would be like Abame. Once again, Achebe resists the temptation to make the end of the book about the colonial invaders. There's only two. We understand what the invaders are doing, 
but it's not the focus of our story. Achebe wants to tell us what happened from inside the culture. He wants to also demonstrate what about a Konkwo himself that is problematic. Why does this great man fall? And even prior to that, we should ask the question, why is this a great man? Because there's no doubt we are to think of him as great, but yet imperfect. Echebe does not set perfection as a standard for greatness. As we look at the ending of the book, we must see that there really are three endings to this book. The first will center around a conquo. It's a personal story. The second will center around the district commissioner. It's a colonial story. But the third centers around the Igbo people, and this is a global story. When we see it this way, I believe we can see that the colonial element is actually the most dated and maybe the least important of the three endings. Let's look at how we are to understand the ironic ending of this book. Let's look at Okonkwo and his personal story. Okonkwo's story starts in the vein of a classical Greek hero. He's mythical from the first chapter, and he epitomizes much that's admired by his community. He's strong, but he has a fatal flaw, as the Greeks refer to his harmatia. He has hubis, excessive pride. He kind of reminds me a lot of Achilles, to be honest. He's larger than life. But just like the classical Greek heroes, his excessive behaviors put him at odds, not just with the members of his own community, but also at odds with the gods. He defies the gods, but at times he also takes up their cause. In chapter 22, Mr. Brown, the missionary who was Mr. Smith's successor, was not wise in keeping the peace between the Christians and the rest of the clan. And one of his hot-headed converts did one of the most disrespectful things anyone could ever do in Amophia. He unmasked the Egbuwu. That, if you remember, these were the men who were representing the voices of the ancestors during the trial. Nothing could be more sacrilegious to this group of people than to do such a thing. Mr. Smith hid Enoch from the wrath of the clan. And as a result, the clan burned down the church. When the Egwugu came to execute justice, these were their words to Mr. Smith. Tell the white man that we do not do him any harm, he said to the interpreter. Tell him to go back to his house and leave us alone. We liked his brother who was with us before. He was foolish, but we liked him. And for his sake, we shall not harm his brother. But this shrine which he built must be destroyed. We shall no longer allow it in our midst. It has bred untold abominations, and we have come to put an end to it. He turned to his comrades. Fathers of Mophia, I salute you. And they replied with one guttural voice. He turned again to the missionary. You can stay with us if you like our ways. You can worship your own God. It is good that a man should worship the gods and the spirits of his fathers. Go back to your house so that you may not be hurt. Our anger is great, but we have held it down so that we can talk to you. And, of course, now that we know more of the Ibu civilization uh, and their traditions and their systems, this retribution seems reasonable and understandable, and uh, Okonkwo's anger is pretty much justified. And nobody gets hurt, really. It's reasonable that in the next chapter, when the six leaders of the community are invited to discuss this burning with the district commissioner— they go in good faith. 
Dialogue has always been the instrument of balance in the Ibu culture, and it's the way to peace. It's entirely understandable that a Koko burns with rage when they are deceived, locked up, shaved, and humiliated by the outsiders. This is a government who literally and ironically lies, puts men in handcuffs, and then ironically claims that this is all for peaceful administration. Quote, this, and let me quote the text again, filled a conquo that says this, a conquo was choked with hate. He's mad at the district commissioner. He's been humiliated by men who have not worked for their place in society. They were given authority by the British, some outside agent that has not been given any permission by anyone around to be in charge. There's internal agreed upon locally controlled systems of justice and we as readers clearly understand that the people running now the community are not even ethical they're not moral people they're the opposite of that the katma overcharge the community for the bail this in itself is unethical they keep huge bribes the new justice system is totally corrupt from the beginning at every level so it's reasonable that Aconquo's anger is justified. But his response, which comes in the second to the last chapter of the book, is foolish. In a flash, Aconquo drew his machete. The messenger crouched to avoid the blow, but it was useless. Aconquo's machete descended twice and the man's head lay beside his uniform body. The twist to this hero's story is the following sentence. Aconquo stood looking at the dead man. He knew that Omofia would not go to war. He knew because they had let the other messengers escape. They had broken into tumult instead of action. He discerned fright in that tumult. He heard voices asking, why did he do it? He wiped his machete on the sand and went away. If we look at the scene, it's shocking for so many reasons. Aconquo did not kill a white man. He killed a fellow native, and furthermore, he wiped the blood off of his machete. That was never done in this culture. He had remained true to his values until he fell apart and violated a core principle, the deliberate killing of a native. He had broken, as we can clearly see. This is not the honorable man from the beginning of the book. His suicide, which we don't even see, we find it doesn't really even surprise us at this point. It's consistent that with what has happened to him. Aconqua would rather die than yield to the Katma. But even more than that, he has fallen apart by his own definition in his own culture, and he would rather face the wrath of his own gods, committing one more crime against the goddess Ani, suicide, than to live in the New World Order. That's very Greek. Obierica honors him with his angry words toward the district commissioner. The text reads, Obierica, who had been gazing steadily at his friend's dangling body, turned suddenly to the district commissioner and said ferociously, that man was one of the greatest men in Mofia. You drove him to kill himself, and now he will be buried like a dog. He could not say more. His voice trembled and choked his words. Well, truthfully and ironically, the application of British law in Africa was something that the British considered to be their greatest contribution. And they consider themselves, and I will quote the Journal of African Law, consider themselves 
the keeper of the conscience of the native communities in regard to the absolute enforcement of alleged native customs. And as we can see from reading uh, Achebe's book, that's just a totally foolish statement. And the British had no idea what they were doing. They created nicely phrased attempts at integrating African values with things like repugnancy laws and stare decisis, but neither British or African justice was faithfully implemented, and the whole thing reeks with irony. I mean, the story is a perfect illustration. African natives had already executed justice with no loss of life until the British intervened, and the burning of the church was just something the district commissioner understood nothing about. It was the execution of justice, not an aggressive act for them. And this is the irony that Achebe uses to end his book. Let's read the end of the book. Let me point, as we do that, Achebe has once again put us into the mind of a character. But this time we're going into the mind of the white district commissioner. He's the one that gets the final word after they cut down a Conquo's body. The commissioner went away, taking three or four of the soldiers with him, in the many years in which he had toiled to bring civilization to different parts of Africa, he had learned a number of things. One of them was that a district commissioner must never attend to such undignified details as cutting a hanged man from the tree. Such attention would give the natives a poor opinion of him. In the book which he planned to write, he would stress that point. As he walked back to the court, he thought about that book. Every day brought him some new material. The story of this man who had killed a messenger and hanged himself would make interesting reading. One could almost write a whole chapter on him. Perhaps not a whole chapter, but a reasonable paragraph at any rate. There was so much else to include, and one must be firm in cutting out details. He had already chosen the title of the book after much thought. The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. I'm sure Achebe was so angry when he created that title of the book, Pacification, Primitive Tribes. Such irony to end the book. In Achebe's essay, Colonialist Criticism, he says this, To the colonialist mind, it was always of the utmost importance to be able to say, I know my natives, a claim which implied how things at one, that the native were really quite simple, and two, that understanding him and controlling him went hand in hand, Understanding be a precondition for control, and control constituting adequate proof of understanding. Yet look at the end of the book. Aconquo's story is an epic story, but the district commissioner understands so little of it, he can't even figure out how to fill a paragraph. He is no better at understanding the things in front of him than Conrad's Marlowe. Nothing had changed. Indeed, and with this bitter mockery of the colonizers, Achebe confronts and discredits the entirety of uh, the quasi-historical record kept by the district commissioners all over the continent for the duration of the colonial occupation. And like I said, Achebe can do this gently and still cut your heart. The final way to understand the ending of this book is to look at the people Aconquo left behind. That is where the tragedy goes from Greek tragedy to modern tragedy. In Greek tragedy, the audience finds catharsis. We get this emotional release. It's open. It's over. We're free. With the death of Aconqua, we have this kind of classical Greek ending. 
But the story is more than just about a conquo. What about the people left behind? What about Norway, who changed his name to Isaac? Is he okay now? Nothing here suggests that he will be. Modern tragedy provides no release by definition. There's no certainty. In this case, we're left with a post-colonial Africa that's ambiguous. Achebe called it the crossroads of culture. And that is where Achebe is very much a postmodern writer. Not that different in some sense than Elliot Kafka or sometimes even Fitzgerald. Wow, what company <laughs> keep him. <laughs> I know. Uh, as students of history, we can also find our current modern moment. Today, the entire world is at a crossroads of cultures. And Nigeria found itself in a world that was ironically aristocratic and democratic. Heroic, but ironic, and both contemporary and ancient at the same time. And in that sense, the world today very much reflects the clashes of the cultures that Achebe really skillfully represented. And it makes it much more than just about race or colonialism. Are we, as citizens of our planet, going to discard ancient wisdom and tradition in favor of new ideas, new influences? that provide quick economic gains at the expense of a center that holds? Are the young with their technology going to rule over the old? Are those with power going to steamroll over the many of us without? Do our systems promote integrity or corruption? And in that sense, we are all heirs of Achebe's prophetic message, even though I do sound a little melodramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do. All right. Wow. What a book. What a man. Uh, Thanks for listening. We uh, appreciate you coming along, uh, spending time with us, talking about Achebe's great book, Things Fall Apart. Uh, As we finish up, we always like to ask you to tell a friend, text them an episode of what you've been listening to. Follow us on our social media. Check us out on howtolovelitpodcast.com. Thanks again. Peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.